This is Spacetime Series 25, Episode 29, for broadcast on the 9th of March, 2022. Coming up on Spacetime, discovery of a black hole spinning on its side, the James Webb Space Telescope reaches another milestone, and new science experiments reach the International Space Station. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered a black hole in a binary system which appears to be spinning on its side. The discovery, reported in the journal Science, challenges current theoretical models on black hole formation. The study's authors found the axis of rotation of the black hole, which is known as Maxi J1820 070, is tilted more than 40 degrees relative to the axis of its stellar orbit with its binary companion. Usually, celestial bodies orbiting around a larger central body are aligned to the central body's rotation. And we can see this is true in our own solar system, where the planets orbit around the Sun along a plane called the ecliptic, which roughly coincides with the equatorial plane of the Sun. And their orbit follows the Sun's spin, travelling in the same direction. And they also all rotate in the same direction as the Sun's rotation as well, with the exception of Venus and Uranus, possibly due to massive collisions early in their history. Observations show the black hole in Maxi J1820 070 is dragging matter from a nearby lighter companion star orbiting around it. The study's lead author, Juri Patanen from Finland's University of Turku, says the team can clearly see bright optical and X-ray radiation as the last sign of the infalling material to the black hole. And they can also see radio emissions from relativistic jets expelled from the system perpendicular to the black hole's accretion disk. By following these jets, the authors were able to accurately determine the direction of the rotation of the black hole. As the amount of gas falling from the companion star to the black hole began to decrease, the system dimmed and more of the light of the system wound up coming from the companion star. In this way, the authors were able to measure the orbital inclination of the pair using spectroscopy. The difference of more than 40 degrees between the orbital axis and the black hole's spin was completely unexpected. Scientists have often assumed this difference to be very small when they've modelled the behaviour of matter in curved space-time around a black hole. The thing is, current models are already really complex, and now these new findings will force astronomers to add yet another new dimension to them. This is space-time. Still to come, the James Webb Space Telescope reaches another milestone, and a whole bunch of new science experiments reach the International Space Station. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Scientists undertaking the laborious task of fine-tuning the James Webb Space Telescope have reached another critical milestone. The telescope is now in its final orbital position, some 1.5 million kilometres from Earth in the L2 or Lagrangian 2 position on the opposite side of the Earth to the Sun. 
James Webb technicians have now successfully completed segment alignment and image stacking. The second and third of seven phases involved in aligning the observatory's primary mirror. They first needed to activate the telescope's fine guidance sensor. That allowed them to lock onto a guide star and keep the telescope pointed towards that star with a high degree of accuracy. The star they chose was HD84406, a bright isolated star in the constellation Ursa Major. To stay locked onto the celestial target, the fine guidance sensor measures the exact position of the guide star in its field of view 16 times per second and then sends adjustments to the telescope's fine steering mirror about 3 times per second. The light from that single guide star was received by the 18 separate mirrors which make up the individual golden hexagonal segments of the telescope's primary mirror. Once the technicians had the 18 separate images, they began the segment alignment phase, which corrects most of the large positioning errors in the mirror segments. This involved defocusing the segment images by moving the secondary mirror slightly. Mathematical analysis called phase retrieval is applied to the defocused images to determine the precise positioning errors of the segments. The adjustment of the segments then results in, well, I guess you'd call them 18 well-corrected telescopes. However, these 18 hexagonal segments still aren't working together as a single mirror. Lee Feinberg from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, is the James Webb Space Telescope's optical telescope element manager. Well, first of all, the first evaluation images came in in the middle of the night, but the team all came in and um, we gathered and we evaluated whether the, the camera was working well enough for us to proceed on with the alignment. And uh, as we analyzed those first, uh, you know, photons, if you will, um, the team was pretty positive that the camera was working properly and the instrument was working properly. So we, we picked a star that was very bright and didn't have any stars near it that would contaminate the image. We know that the primary mirror segments aren't aligned, so they actually act like 18 separate telescopes. And we expect to see 18 separate images, one for each mirror, that are a little bit blurry at this point because we haven't aligned or focused anything. And so we pointed at a bright star and we made a mosaic. We actually took the near-infrared camera and we took images in different parts of the sky and then we looked for the 18 spots from the 18 different telescopes, if you will. And we were very excited to find them. And the 18 spots were actually fairly close to each other. So really everything was very close to what was predicted. We've identified which of the 18 spots is which mirror. At this point, we even know which ones are from the wings. And uh, it turns out one of the wings, you can actually see those three spots are a little farther over. And, and that's sort of what we expected. So we've identified all 18 spots. And uh, the next step is to make an array of them. And then we're ready to start uh, what we call global alignment, which is when each of those 18 spots will start to be aligned and focused. And that's sort of the, the last step before we take those 18 spots and put them on top of each other to start forming a single star going through the 18 separate telescopes. We also took a, a selfie of the primary mirror. We took an image of the primary mirror, and that helps us understand the alignment of the telescope, especially the primary mirror, to the, the camera itself and the instruments. There's actually a special lens in the near-infrared camera that you can put in, and it allows you to take a, a picture of the primary mirror itself and in this particular case, one of the segments is pointing at a star. So that is the segment that lights up. But you can see the outline through the shadows of all 18 segments. And you also can see the outline 
of what's inside of the instrument itself, and we can see how well that primary mirror in the telescope is aligned to the instrument. And that gives us some initial confidence that the alignment looks good, and that's a good starting point for doing the alignment of the telescope. We have now gotten some data looking through focus, and we've been able to see that we don't see any surprises in the shapes of the mirrors that we're looking at. So, so far so good, but we do have a long way to go. That's Lee Feinberg from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. To put all the light from these 18 mirrors into a single place, each segment image had to be stacked on top of one another. In this image stacking phase, scientists moved the individual segment images so they all fell precisely at the center of the field of view to produce one unified image. So the focus dots reflected by each mirror were literally stacked on top of each other to produce a single image on the telescope's secondary mirror, delivering photons of light from each segment to exactly the same spot. During image stacking, scientists activated a series of six mirrors at a time, getting them to refocus their photons until all the dots of starlight overlapped. While image stacking placed the light of the guide star into one place, the mirror segments are still acting like 18 small telescopes rather than one single big one. And this is where the fourth phase of mirror alignment, called coarse phasing, comes in. It'll involve all these segments lining up with each other by correcting vertical displacement between the mirror segments. This will make this single dot of starlight that they've now achieved progressively sharper and sharper and more focused. Ultimately, James Webb will allow scientists to see much further back in space-time than the Hubble Space Telescope. It'll look back more than 13.4 billion years to the birth of the very first stars and galaxies. But it'll do more than that. Astrobiologist Gita Arne from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center says James Webb will also allow scientists to study the atmosphere of distant worlds, searching for signs of life. I'm really excited to use the James Webb Space Telescope to look for signs of life in the atmospheres of potentially habitable planets. And in particular, we're searching for signatures called biosignatures, which are remotely observable signs of life. Now on Earth, some of the important biosignatures of our own planet are oxygen, which is produced by oxygenic photosynthesis that, of course, we all know plants do that. Um, there's all sorts of microbes that also do oxygenic photosynthesis. And a lot of people consider it the dominant metabolism of our planet. Another important biosignature of Earth is methane. A methane on our planet is produced by microbes that live in a variety of places, ranging from hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean to the guts of cows. And they produce most of the methane that's in our planet's atmosphere. So these are important gases that we want to look for in the atmospheres of exoplanets with the James Webb Space Telescope. But you also have to really carefully interpret that gas. That is, does it make sense for life to produce that given biosignature in that given environment? And then, really importantly, you also want to rule out what are called biosignature false positives. Uh, biosignature false positives are non-life ways that a planet can fool you by producing, you know, something that looks like a biosignature, but it's not actually a biosignature because it's not produced by life. It's produced by some other process like volcanism or atmospheric chemistry or, you know, any other process that doesn't involve life. 
So all of this together means this is a really exciting search, but it's going to be complicated. And if we detect something that we think is a biosignature when we look at an exoplanet, it might not immediately be definitive. It might be ambiguous until we collect more data to better understand it in the context of its environment. Let's get to Arnie from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. And this is space time. Still to come. A whole bunch of new science experiments reach the International Space Station. And later in the science report, new research debunks previous assumptions that the mental speed of humans peaks at age 20. So I guess there's hope for me yet. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A Northrop Grumman Cygnus cargo ship carrying 3.8 tons of supplies has successfully docked with the International Space Station. The Cygnus was grabbed by the space station's robotic arm and manoeuvred into position to attach to the Unity module's Earth-facing port one and a half days after launching aboard a Northrop Grumman Antares rocket from NASA's Wallops Island Flight Facility on the Virginian Mid-Atlantic coast. This is Mission Control Houston Launch Pad 0A at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport on Wallops Island, Virginia. Northrop Grumman's Antares rocket poised on top of the pad, towering 130 33 feet tall, fully fueled, ready to launch over 8,000 pounds of research, fresh food, technology demonstrations, and supplies to the International Space Station. This is Northrop Grumman's CRS-17 mission, and liftoff is set for 11.40 and 3 seconds a.m. Central Time, 12.40 and 3 seconds p.m. Eastern Time at the start of a five-minute launch window today. The first stage is already loaded with its fuel to launch into space, liquid oxygen, and RP-1 kerosene. The second stage of Antares is a solid rocket motor. LC Prop 2. The weather conditions for today's launch are looking good. It's currently 45 degrees and partly cloudy with winds at about 18 miles per hour. Teams all across the United States are supporting today's NG-17 launch. At the Wallops Flight Facility in Wallops, Virginia, Northrop Grumman engineers are monitoring today's countdown from the Range Control Center. Everything is currently a go for launch. Teams in Mission Control Houston are also monitoring the operation of the space station and watching today's launch. The flight director during this Orbit 2 shift is Judd Freeling. Stage 1, LC, countdown 1. Go ahead, LC. Yeah, provide status of cold helium bottle supply pressure. Yeah, we're still monitoring, LC. Uh, we'll make a call between now and L-16 minutes. There are currently seven human beings living and working aboard the International Space Station as part of Expedition 66. They are NASA astronaut Raja Chari and Tom Marshburn, European Space Agency astronaut Matthias Maurer, Roscosmos cosmonauts Anton Shkaplerov and Pyotr Dubrov, and NASA astronauts Kayla Barron and Mark Vandehei. Vandehei is in the midst of a record-breaking space flight in which he will become the American with the longest single space flight. On March 15th, he'll break Scott Kelly's record of 340 days in space. When Vandehei returns to Earth on March 30th, he will have spent a record-breaking 355 consecutive days in orbit. It is a tradition for each Cygnus vehicle to be named after a significant space explorer who contributed to human space exploration. Today's Cygnus being launched is named the SS Piers 
Sellers after late NASA astronaut and climate scientist Pierre Sellers. Pierre Sellers began his career at NASA in 1982 and flew three times on the space shuttle aboard STS-112, STS-121, and STS-132. In total, Pierre Sellers spent nearly 35 days in space, and as an astronaut, he helped build the International Space Station over the course of six spacewalks totaling 41 hours. This Cygnus mission is unique in that it has reboost capability. In addition to delivering more than the 8,000 pounds of critical cargo to the astronauts living on the ISS, uh, the Northrop Grumman Cygnus spacecraft will perform its first operational ISS reboost. Reboosting is a critical part of altitude maintenance for the International Space Station. What happens is the Earth's atmosphere causes a slight amount of drag, causing the uh, station orbit to decay over time. So Northrop Grumman will perform the adjustment service while Cygnus is actually birthed with the station. So small, precise nudges are required to place the ISS back into its proper orbit. And Northrop Grumman is very proud to offer the standard service to NASA. Range is green. Copy. Range green. Copy. Uh, priming has been verified. Check 427 and 428. And launch team be advised. Phase 3 dynamic limits will be active. Everything's still green across the board. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. We have engine ignition. And we have liftoff of the SS Pierce Sellers carrying over 8,000 pounds of cargo to the International Space Station. Good performance on the first stage so far. Still at 100% thrust and nominal. Core valve VNO3 open remains nominal. Electrical power is nominal. Everything continuing to look good on Antares. 25,000 feet through max Q. The first stage is now passing through max Q, the area of maximum dynamic pressure on the rocket. Now 90 seconds into today's flight of the Northrop Grumman Cygnus resupply cargo craft headed to the International Space Station. PNG-3 now open. Engines remain steady at 100% thrust, 7,000 feet per second velocity. Attitude remains nominal. Continuing to get good reports from the range control center at Wallops. Now 11,000 feet per second. Beginning slow throttle down. Pressures remain nominal. Throttle down will occur three minutes into the flight, which means main engine cutoff will be coming soon. And Miko. We have Miko or main engine cutoff, and Terry's now entering a coast stage. Fairing separation will occur about 30 seconds from now. Stage one delta V. Stage one is separated. There are some controlled firings of the inner stage of the rocket. Everything continuing to perform as expected. The vehicle remains at nominal at the fairing separation. Fairing separation confirms Cygnus now exposed to the atmosphere as it continues its trek uphill to its preliminary orbit. Stage two ignition. Stage two ignition confirmed. Stage two remains nominal. Stage two is a solid rocket motor burn for about two minutes and 44 seconds. TVC on, is nominal. Power is nominal. VC is nominal. Continuing to hear all good calls now four minutes into today's flight. 100 seconds to burnout. The equal attitude remains nominal. Stage two remains nominal. Stage two motor pressure starting to tail off. The equal attitude remains nominal. And we have stage two burnout. Stage two burnout confirmed. Cygnus has reached the preliminary orbital insertion. The next major event will be Cygnus separation from the second stage, which will occur at about the eight minute 51 second mark. Everything still performing as expected now seven minutes into today's launch. Power and attitude remain nominal. Terry's remains nominal. And we have payload separation. Spacecraft separation confirmed. Cygnus now well on its way to the International Space Station. The mission was Northrop Grumman's 17th contracted resupply flight under NASA's second commercial resupply services contract. The Cygnus manifest included research equipment, crew supplies and hardware for the team aboard the orbiting outpost. This included equipment designed to study the effects of a drug on breast and prostate cancer cells, a new combustion facility, 
an investigation on skin ageing and microgravity, new hydrogen sensors to test the space station's oxygen generation system, new equipment to test hydroponic and aeroponic techniques for plant growth, a demonstration of a lithium-ion secondary battery capable of safe, stable operation under extreme temperatures and in a vacuum environment, and a small 6-kilogram nanosatellite called Nachos, which is equipped with a new prototype instrument designed to make it easier to monitor volcanic activity and air quality. This is Space Time. Time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study has shown that the effectiveness of COVID-19 booster shots begins to wane after just 10 weeks. The findings, reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, looked at the effectiveness of two and three doses of vaccine against symptomatic disease from the Omicron variant in the United Kingdom. Researchers found that after 20 weeks, Two doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine had no impact on preventing COVID-19 symptoms from Omicron, while two doses of the Pfizer vaccine had an efficacy of just 8.8%. Boosters did improve the efficacy of vaccines, but this too started to wane after 10 weeks. The efficacy of the Pfizer booster dropped to around 40-45% to after 10 weeks, while the Moderna booster's efficacy was around 60-65% to after 10 weeks. The study didn't look at their efficacy against severe disease cases or death. Over 6 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus since it first escaped from Wuhan, China. But the World Health Organization warns that the true death toll is likely to be at least double that amount, with some 450 million confirmed cases now recorded. Well, it's already known that prunes are good for your intestinal tract. But new research suggests they may be good for bone health as well. A report in the journal Advances in Nutrition has found that prunes can help prevent or delay bone loss in postmenopausal women, possibly due to their ability to reduce inflammation and oxidative stress, both of which contribute to bone loss. In postmenopausal women, lower levels of estrogen can trigger a rise in oxidative stress and inflammation, increasing the risk of weakening bones that may lead to fractures. Clinical trials found that eating 100 grams of prunes, that's about 10 prunes every day for a year, improved bone mineral density in both the forearm and the lower spine and decreased signs of bone turnover. Additionally, eating 50 or 100 grams of prunes a day for six months prevented loss of total bone mineral density and decreased TRAP5B, a marker of bone reabsorption, compared to women who didn't eat prunes. The researchers say one possible mechanism for the effects of the prunes is triggering a change in the gut microbiome, which then lowers inflammation in the colon. This may then lower levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines and markers of oxidative damage. While the research was peer-reviewed, it's worth pointing out it was also supported by the California Dried Plum Board. A new study claims the person's mental speed doesn't really start to slow down until after the age of 60. The findings, reported in the journal Nature, are based on an analysis of online experiments that measured reaction times in over a million participants. The results debunk previous assumptions that mental speed peaks at age 20, 
Researchers found that although response times did slow down after the age of 20, this was due to older people being more cautious in their decisions, not being slower. The team also noted that other factors, such as being less tech-savvy, could also have slowed down reaction times. The authors say the mental process of making a decision about the correct answer didn't start to slow down until the age of 60, after which time there was a decline. Paleontologists have uncovered the fossilised remains of a giant sea scorpion that swam through the freshwater streams and rivers of what is now Australia some 252 million years ago. A report in the journal Historical Biology describes Woodwardopterus freemanorum as a massive metre-long predatory vertebrate. The specimen was unearthed near the central Queensland rural town of Theodore, and it's at least 11 million years younger than any previously known sea scorpion fossil, making it the last of its kind. The ancient creature lived from the early late Ordovician through to the late Permian Epoch. China, Russia and Iran operate the world's leading cyber criminal networks. And in the build-up to Putin's war on Ukraine, cyber attacks have intensified. And while the focus of these criminal hackers have been on the people of Ukraine, you can expect Putin and his acolytes to lash out on all who opposed his invasion of that country. Technology editor Alex Saharov-Royt from ITWire.com says now's a really good time to make sure you've updated all your technology. Well, simply to make sure that everything in your home and business is updated. All of your phones, your servers, your uh, software, your browsers, your tablets, your smart TVs. I mean, everything needs to be updated to make sure that it is protected from the various vulnerabilities that are out there. The Australian Cyber Security Centre, which is at cyber.gov.au, is calling on Australian organisations to urgently adopt enhanced cyber security posture. And they talk about the essential eight that people need to be doing, which is including application control, to patch applications, to configure Microsoft Office macro settings, to make sure you've got user application hardening, to restrict administrative privileges, patch operating systems to use multi-factor authentication, which means one of those Yubi keys, or at the very least, to use mobile authentication apps or even just SMS, but of course, one of those little authentication keys from a company like Yubico is very cool. And to not only make regular backups of all of your important data, but these days to have those backups in multiple clouds, encrypted if you want to be super protected, and to have multiple physical backups, and to have then at least have one of those physical backups off-site. I mean, we've seen with the floods in Australia uh, that uh, you know, if you have something uh, stored at your house or in your garage and you think that's good enough, uh, it could all be washed down the river or gone or waterlogged and destroyed by the time uh, the floods recede. So you know, clearly there are always threats of cyber attacks, whether there's war happening or not. Russia has threatened to respond to countries that are supporting Ukraine. And it's, but this is advice that people need to be following all the time. And it's a little bit, a little bit like when people have uh, their hard disk crash or some other problem, they'll become experts on backup uh, once it's too late. <laughs> you don't want to be that person. You want to make sure that you are backed up seven ways to Sunday and that you test your backups by another computer and try restoring that backup to a, another computer to see whether your backups work. Plenty of people have tried to restore backups and to discover that uh, you know, they couldn't download it properly or the disk was somehow corrupted or it stopped backing up six months ago. So uh, this is just 
basic computer hygiene for the 21st century, and it's only become ever more important. On a completely different topic, Telstra have just set a new speed record for 5G. Tell us. Yes, they've set a new network download speed record of 5.9 gigabits per second in collaboration with Qualcomm and Ericsson. And they have a smartphone form factor mobile test device that's got the Snapdragon X65 5G mobile system inside and also something called the Quick Qualcomm Fast Connect 6900 subsystem. And uh, yeah, 5.9 gigabits. Obviously, that's in a test scenario. Uh, that's going to obviously be slower when you've got a lot of people that are using uh, you know, the correct smartphones connecting to towers that are upgraded with that. But it just goes to show that you know this multi-gigabit world uh, is something that is probably going to be something everybody will be enjoying in the 2030s by the time, especially 6G rolls out. And that wasn't the only announcement from Telstra either, was it? No, Telstra and OneWeb have made an announcement that the low Earth orbit satellite communications company OneWeb is signing a memorandum of understanding, and they're going to be exploring new solutions for improved digital connectivity across Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. It's a non-exclusive agreement, but it brings together Telstra's expertise in telecommunications and OneWeb's satellite capability. And uh, what this probably means is that future smartphones will have satellite connectivity built in. There were rumors that the iPhone 13 would have some secret backup mode to allow you to send messages in places where you had no cell phone service. And it only makes sense that future smartphones will be able to connect to all of those uh, satellites that are encircling the globe and that are delivering bandwidth. I mean, one of the things that happened in Australia recently was that the entire state of Tasmania lost most of its internet connection because although there are three undersea fibre cables... Two cables were cut, yes. Two cables were cut, yes. So there were three connecting the mainland to the island of Tasmania. It wasn't the Russians, one was, actually, was it? Well, uh, that's what I was wondering myself too, if it had happened undersea. But there was a civil works company that accidentally cut... They didn't do the dial before you dig, which is a famous term in Australia that warns everybody to make sure that they dial to figure out where the power lines and water lines and gas lines are before they just start using a backhoe to dig into things. And uh, this civil works company, which obviously should have known better, you know, severed this cable. The Telstra technicians had to pull a kilometre's worth of cable out and repair it and then, I guess, reattach it. The breakage occurred at 1pm. Telstra had it back up by 7pm. So that's pretty damn fast to be able to restore it. But although that was, you know, there were three cables and you know, a second cable was meant to obviously be a backup for all the data, there was a second breakage on the same day in a remote part of Tasmania. Now, I don't know if that Tasmanian... That's all very that suspicious sec- when that happens, isn't it? Well, that's right. It's not meant to happen. There was a third cable which was allowing phone connectivity, voice connectivity, through which triple O calls were prioritised, but it had very sort of low amounts of data was being flooded. So very little data was getting through. But it also goes to show that an entire state can be cut off from the internet and the people inside that state are also cut off. There is no, or there was no intranet inside uh, Tasmania to allow Tasmanians to log on to see their local utilities. uh, I'm shocked that satellite backup didn't kick in automatically. Well, you would think that satellite backup was available and there was the was reports that people who did have the SkyMuster NBN satellite systems were able to get internet, and I'm assuming that anybody that was part of the Starlink, uh, Elon Musk's you know satellite broadband yeah, network, yeah. if they're on the beta program, they would have been connected too. And of course, that's up and running in Ukraine now, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, there was a tweet from uh, one of the Ukrainian politicians showing the trucks that had arrived in the Ukraine with the Starlink equipment in the back. So uh, yeah, the Starlink equipment has arrived in Ukraine, and clearly anybody that is really relying upon staying connected even if fiber cables are cut under the sea or on land, we'll have to turn to satellite connections, whether it's SkyMuster or uh, Starlink or any of the other ones that are due to arrive this decade. So uh, 
it's clear that uh, you know we need to have some sort of backup and this has exposed uh, Australians to you know Tasmanians to being cut off from the rest of the world that's Alex Saharov Royt from ity.com That's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 